0: Hello and welcome to I Must Break, this podcast. This is the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of Dolph Lundgren, and this is episode two. Today we're discussing the 1987 cult classic film Masters of the Universe. This is the second film in Dolph Lundgren's filmography, technically the third if you wanna count his cameo in the James Bond film View to a Kill, but it's also his first leading role. Uh, In this film, Dolph Lundgren took on the role of He-Man, popular larger-than-life hero in this adaptation of the popular toy line and animated series from the 1980s. I'm your host Sean Malloy and with me today is the ultimate Dolph Lundgren scholar Jeremy Demoiselle. Jeremy how's it going?
1: Good thanks glad to be on the show.
0: Hey thank you so much um, and I said your last name right correct?
1: Yeah yeah that's good. <laughs>
0: Okay. Um, Yeah. So, you know, when I when I talked to you um, and when I wanted to start this project, you know, it was pretty much a given that I was going to have you on this on on the show. You know, you and I are both uh, both fans and uh, we have such an immense appreciation for the man and his work. But uh, you you like I said, you are the ultimate scholar. um, And I was hoping that maybe you might be able to tell us before we get into this might be able to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you developed an appreciation for uh, for Lundgren over the years
1: well it's uh it's a long story actually and masters of the universe is where it all it all started um you know i was a masters of the universe fan since i was four or five years old and um, i saw the movie uh when it came out uh it came out in france in uh, at christmas uh 90, 1987, and um you know for for me it was uh this movie was like star wars basically i don't even remember if i had seen star wars at the time and mostly i had seen like uh, disney movies and stuff like that so it was one of the first live movies that i had seen and as a fan for me it was you know groundbreaking and kind of a you know a big spectacle and uh um I didn't unlike other fans of the um, the toys and the cartoon I didn't have any problems with the maybe we'll come back to that but I I didn't have many problems with the how they adapted Masters of the Universe and uh I just thought the the movie was awesome and uh it started my passion and cinephilia um you know I developed i actually started to look for magazines and articles about the movie and at the same time i was looking at movie magazines and stuff like that and this is how i um my passion for movies uh, came about and uh, so later on i um, i went to college and i did uh, film studies and um, i actually wrote my master's degree thesis on Dolph Lundgren, on his films, uh, in a very academic way. And um, I started working in a prominent film distribution company um, in France. They produced uh, Reservoir Dogs and uh, True Romance and uh, Crying Freeman and Brotherhood of the Wolf, among many others, and they also distributed Um, the first Jackie Chan movies in France, and the first uh, Van Damme movies, and John Who movies, and uh, later on, uh, The Lord of the Rings. And, um, uh, you know, then after that, I actually went to Los Angeles and lived there for two years, um, got more experience on set, and uh, went to film school and whatnot. And uh, a few years later, when I came back to France, I actually got the chance to um, interview Dolph Lundgren for a movie he had directed. And this is how I started collaborating with him. I met him on the set and we started working together.
0: That's extremely impressive, and you know, as and we're probably going to be getting into this as well. But you know, um, the film Masters of the Universe does not have the best reputation. I mean, it has been um, critically, and you know, it's no no big uh, surprise. It was. commercially maligned as well over the years. But yeah, it is a cult classic film, and I'm glad, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on, is because not only, like I said, are you the ultimate scholar who has actually met the man himself, which is, you know, extremely impressive on its own end, but yeah, when you and I first... First spoke and first met. Yeah, this was the film actually that made me a Dolph Lundgren fan as well. You know, I was um, I I saw this in the theaters when I was real little as well. I think I was about five or six, and I didn't really know who Dolph Lundgren was. But um, you know, back in the eighties, you know, I don't think I don't think people nowadays really fully um, have, uh, especially kids nowadays. I don't think we really have. The, the, the heroes and the impact that um, that that He-Man brought, you know, back in the 80s, you know, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. This was a massive toy line that was just it, it was amazing, especially if you were a young boy um, back in the 80s. It was it was larger than life, and so to see my you know child hero brought to life by this larger than life figure um, you know, in the form of Dolph Lundgren, um, that immediately made me a fan, (laughs) you know, um, of the guy's work as well. And so, yeah, what, what I started doing, you know, I was, I was pretty young, so I'd say it probably wasn't until I was about nine or 10, but yeah, what I started doing is I started, um, following, um, Lundgren's work, you know, onward and, you know, here we are today, but, um, but yeah, it really is, it's such an interesting film and I've been looking forward to getting into this because, Like I said, it is critically and commercially um, maligned, and you know you watch it today, and maybe it's because I'm watching it through this lens of, you know, golly, I loved this film as a kid, that I really can't, I really can't knock it too much. It's weird, and so, and I'll I'll admit that right now, my bias on this film completely, I'll I'll put it right there on my sleeve, but I I have trouble knocking it and seeing a whole lot of the bad in it because I feel. It it is such a staple of of my childhood, you know?
1: Yeah, and, uh, you know, like you said, the the toys were huge, and it was, you know, there weren't that many heroes and characters of that caliber, and, you know, uh, Conan existed, and you had others like that, but it wasn't... I mean, the the early 80s was actually the beginning of, you know, the era of... um, beefed-up, muscular heroes, you know, that uh, Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger helped building and, um, you know, um, also what I wanted to say because I forgot to mention that uh, in the meantime I had, um, I was managing the um, Dolph Ultimate uh, website and you know, I, I saw over the years how many fans of Dolph, uh came from Masters of the Universe. And I think, you know, he's mostly known for Rocky IV. But at the same time, I feel that his hardcore fans, mo- most of the his hardcore fans um, were like us and grew up in the 80s. And so if you were a kid in the 80s, what you saw was Masters of the Universe and... uh a lot of his fans just um, came from that and kind of um, were faithful to him and, you know, because he's also such a likable action star and he actually made some uh, underrated uh, movies and never really broke through like some of his peers like uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme and Steven Seagal but uh, at the same time he he kept... uh, uh, really solid career um, you know and was still a bankable name um, at least in these kinds of films
0: well you know you, you bring up excellent points I mean and it's like uh, it's like the uh, guest who I had on um, the previous episode with Rocky IV Chris you know he had, he had said it perfectly you know Dolph Lundgren is a survivor you know I mean, his career has the ups and the downs but he has had an extremely impressive career over the years and he's been able to adapt and change his roles over the years. Um, one of the things, you know, that, that I think is so interesting is it just shows that the time that we are living in, you know. I mean, back then, you know, taking on the role of a, uh, of a toy, of a comic book hero, maybe was not considered the best career move. However, if you look nowadays in today's, you know, cinematic climate, you know, um, uh, actors are praying and hoping to latch on to some kind of franchise like this because it gives their career... Um, you know, a, a second wind or it definitely solidifies their career. So it's just, it's just interesting to see the the difference between um, maybe what was not, not 100% acceptable or advised in 1987 compared to, you know, here in 2017, 30 years later, what actors are hoping for, you know?
1: Yeah, and it's weird to say that it was almost ahead of its time. And Back when they were trying to make the movie, um, you know, the toys w- was a huge, it was a huge thing. Uh, it, it made a huge amount of money for Mattel, and uh, the cartoon was huge. Uh, but yet, you know, the producer, who's not Menahem Golan originally, but Edward Pressman, who's the Conan producer, and you know, he made tons of movies and like uh, Wall Street and The Crow and many, many different movies. He's a big time producer and he came from a family who was in the toy business, and that's how he got interested in, you know, getting the rights to adapt Masters of the Universe as a motion picture. Um, and it was actually before the cartoon came out. Um, so the, the movie was actually m- meant more as an a- adaptation of the toys rather than the cartoon. Um, but he had a lot of problems uh, getting financed and approved by major studios, uh, which you'd think is kind of strange because as, as big as the toys were, you know, you would think that the studios would be all over it. And uh, that right. was that was not the case actually, um, and it's uh, so. most studios actually turn it down as a project? And um, you know, at one point they were almost about to make it with one of the producers from the Return of the Jedi uh, with Warner Brothers, um, but they wouldn't make it for more than fifteen million dollars. And uh, that's how Pressman went to Canon who agreed to make it for 17 or 17 and a half million.
0: Yeah and you know uh, that's one of the big things that I imagine we're going to be getting into is just you know the the Canon um, the fact that Canon is behind this and this is a Canon film um, I would say that is one of the things that, that definitely hurts the film and anybody who knows about Canon films I mean they, are, they were such a wild studio and if anyone has not seen the documentary Electric Boogaloo um, please check it out but yeah it, Canon Studios definitely um, I, I think is one of the things, like I said, that that uh, what what I want to say hurts the film, I, I guess, for lack of better terms. Um, but you know, in the end, I feel it still plays, it still holds up. And you know, like I said, if you're a fan of Dolph Lundgren, if you were a fan of Dolph Lundgren in the '80s, chances are, I imagine, this was one of the films that um, that that you know got you started. Um, you know, another one of the things I always found so interesting is, and you might be able to speak to this as well, Jeremy. Um, you know for years Dolph did not really look upon this film um, super highly I mean while this was the film that um, got you know a ton of fans who were little kids it was not the best experience for him I believe only really in recent years he started to he started to embrace it and uh, appreciate it more would you say that's a uh, that's, that's a fair statement
1: yeah I mean it's uh, I think he was always you know, on and off about this film. Um, even originally, he was reluctant reluctant about taking the part because um, he wasn't comfortable uh, playing a um, you know a character based on a toy. And uh, at the same time, his challenge was that he came f- he came from Rocky 4 playing a Russian bad guy, and this was his opportunity. To play an American hero. And um, so he took it, uh, you know, and embraced it and worked really hard for the part. Um, and uh, I think, like for other of his movies, he was disappointed by how they marketed it, how they uh, released it, and the fact that it wasn't such a huge success, even though in the end i think it was not as much of a flop as people say uh because i think worldwide it probably made around a hundred million dollars a hundred million dollars you know um but it it's not you know he he wasn't uh, he was never too big on the um, superheroes and he didn't even necessarily want to be an action star, even though that was on his radar. Uh, but when he started to get into acting, he was just trying to do what any actor do and express himself. And you know, he was um, he wanted to do uh, many things. Um, but so I, I think his view of the movie is as a lot of the times because you don't have the same perspective when you've been involved in it and um, it was also very difficult for him because he had to star in his first movie as a leading role and live up to the image of a of a you know character for kids and uh, so there was a lot of pressure uh, making this film and so I think that, um, you know, uh, of course he appreciates, um, you know, the fans and, you know, this was one of the only movies that he made that wasn't rated R and, uh, you know, but it, it, it wasn't a thing um, and he probably hasn't watched the movie in, you know, uh, for a while. Um- Have you now, let,
0: let me ask you, have you ever asked
1: him about
0: his experiences working on this film and what, what has been responses to you on a personal level?-
1: Actually, you know, I, um, when I meet him uh, and I'm around him and we talk about lots of things and uh, but I try not to play um, groupies, as much as I can unless we're gonna do an interview or something like that so sometimes you know he'll come up with a story or something but um, I didn't properly talk about it with him Um, I can just remember one time um, we were at a dinner uh, on the shoot of his film Command Performance and you know there was a one of the bands that he had in the movie and there was his daughter and there, there was his um, his ex-wife. Um, you know, so he Dolph introduced me to his wife and uh, and I sort of told her um, with Dolph in between us. I, I told his wife, you know, kind of how I became a fan with Masters of the Universe and how I sort of... Um, tell that Dolph had something different about him, you know, about his personality and stuff like that. And and I remember, um, so his wife told me, oh, you know, that's why I married him. And and Dolph was kind of uh, blushing and almost kind of embarrassed, you know, kind of uh, kind of giggling. But uh, you know, that's uh, that's about it. Uh, but I, you know. When the time comes, um, I hope we can do a proper interview about the movie together.
0: Well, you know, um, th- that would be awesome. That would be awesome. I-, I would definitely love to jump in on that, and I will. I will. I would be a fanboy if that's okay. Um, but um, you know, um, what, what you know, as I was telling you um a couple weeks ago, in fact, when we were starting setting this up, you know, um, I sent actually, uh, Lundgren a. Uh, I was thinking, okay, I, I got to get something autographed by him. What do I want autographed? So I'm going through all of my movies, all of my you know, DVDs, all of the artifacts that I have. I don't have as much as you do, but you know, I have a pretty sizable collection. I'm thinking, what can I send him that I would like him to sign? And I had an 8x10 uh, glossy um, poster of, of Masters of the Universe, and I was thinking to myself, Okay, you know, if I sign this to him, is he going to be, you know, okay with it? Is he even going to want to sign it, you know, because I know it's not one of his uh, best and most positive experiences as an actor. Um, But I went ahead and I sent it, and sure enough, a few months later, I got it back. And not only did he sign it, you know, to Sean Dolph Lundgren, but um, he signed it, I have the power. And that was, you know, as a <laughs> as a kid who um, grew up with this film, and you know, now as a grown adult, it brought me back, and I was a little kid again when I got that thing in the mail. It was, it was, it was pretty much the ultimate honor. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, but, he um, he always gets, you know, Masters of the Universe stuff to sign. I know, of course, he'll do it. Um, you know, uh, he's not a uh, he's not gonna be like. No, I'm not gonna sign it because it's Masters of the Universe, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, he's. Uh, I think he sees it as a fun experience now, even though the production was really difficult. Um, uh, but still, um, I think it's. Uh, he sees it as a as a cool thing.
0: Yeah. Well, no, and you know. Um Canon when they first uh, when they first picked up the film um, Dolph was actually the first star. It's my understanding he was the first star who they attached to it. And you know as as difficult as the production was for him, um, you know filming this and everything. And I can only imagine living up to this larger than life hero that that it that it is. Um, i always felt that he was the only choice you know canon you know they needed a name to help sell this film and you know dolph had come off the rocky film and rocky 4 was a huge film i mean it was a, it was such a huge film and dolph was a a name who was, um, you know, at this point, pretty mainstream. So it only made sense that they, they picked him. I mean, you know, they needed a, you know, a big, um, muscular blonde guy for the role and outside of Dolph, you know, who could they have gone with? They could have gone to a wrestler or a bodybuilder, but neither one of, you know, them have, um, the most acting experience you could say. And who knows if they're really a name. So, um, you know, it really made sense to me, um, as much as, you know, a lot of people like to give, um, give Lundgren, you know, a you know, crap, if you will, <laughs> for um, you know, for his accent in the film or for his English. You know, I always felt that he was not only was he the best choice for the role, but I always feel like he was the only choice for the role. And like I said, it made sense for him taking on this role because this was his big opportunity. You know, back in the eighties, you know. Um, you know Arnold Schwarzenegger was huge, Sylvester Stallone was huge. and so Canon Films was trying to you know find their own you know their own next action star. and so Canon Films you know they had Chuck Norris in their wheelhouse as well as uh, Charles Bronson in their wheelhouse. But it makes sense that they also wanted you know their own uh, their own muscular larger than life hero as well that they could use to start selling names. Um, It is unfortunate that the company turned out the, you know, the way it did, but, you know, it's, what's also unfortunate is that, you know, Lundgren definitely had his shot and I always feel like could have risen to the ranks of, you know, of his, you know, other compatriots, uh, you know, risen to the ranks of Sly and, you know, Schwarzenegger. Um, What is always so unfortunate is that these films that gave him the shot to do that, had all sorts of production problems, again, that were not his fault, but they all had these production problems that just, you know, as a result, his star and his credibility um, suffered. You know, if you look at Masters of the Universe, um, this was funded and financed by Canon. Well, they were going under while the film was uh, in production. He next did Red Scorpion, which that also had its own production problems. And then he did The Punisher, which had its own production problems. And these are all films that I honestly feel, had they not had the, the funding and the production problems that they did... Um, internally, I feel that he definitely would have had the opportunity um, and the chance to, you know, be along the same wave- wavelengths as, uh, as those those other guys that he was idolizing
1: yeah, and, and, and you know, each of these movies you mentioned all of the earlier Lundgren movies, they were all meant to make him a bigger action star And oh yeah you and it's know, very obvious.
0: I mean, you you look at the films. It's extremely obvious that these are films um, made to kickstart a franchise and make him a big name. And it's and they're they are such great films. And it's just unfortunate that, you know, that it didn't work. You know what I mean? That they that the that the problems. Excuse me. That the companies funding these films um, didn't have their shit together. You know, for you know, uh, you know, and. Um, Uh, Unfortunately, uh, Dolph was caught in the crosshairs of this, and his uh, and his star was was affected.
1: Yeah, I mean, it wasn't always the company. There were, you know, many factors um, to explain all these behind the scenes stories, Um, and also um, there's one thing is that I think Dolph. He came after Sly and Arnold and um, um, so in a way he came at the right time, at the right place because this was really the era of bodybuilding, bodybuilded action heroes and um, you know today he probably wouldn't make it um, so that was a good thing for him. And at the same time, it was a bit too late compared to Arnold and Sly. And compared to Seagull and Van Damme, you know, they had their own thing. They had their, you know, um, their, um, how do you call it, you know, their uh, mark. Because um, Van Damme was seen as like the the white Bruce Lee and doing all those jump kicks and stuff like that Seagal was doing Aikido which was not so popular <laughs> at the time um, but Lundgren didn't actually have his uh, you know his trademark and I think that's one thing that probably caused him also to not be so popular yeah. um, and at the same time he w- he's a uh, he's a very humble guy and he wasn't gonna, he wasn't very confident. So he was trying to find his marks in the show business and wasn't as keen and and uh, determined as like Van Damme who was very, uh, at the beginning of his career, he knew what he had to do and like after a few years to find major studios and good directors and Dolph wasn't as confident in that way. Um, And at the same time I can also say that uh, movies like Red Scorpion or The Punisher they weren't typical of the the era in a way that he was playing anti-heroes, they weren't like patriotic or you know really heroes that you could cheer for in the same way that you would with Van Damme in Bloodsport or Kickboxer. Um, so I think it didn't click with the audience um, right away.
0: True, true. Well, but, you know, going back to Masters of the Universe, you know, I feel that, um, you know, it had a $15 million budget, actually bloomed up to seventeen, million, um, which... You know, at the time, um, was not you know um, compared to something like Star Wars. You know, um, uh, you know, at the time, this was not you know a ton. But Gary Goddard got to give Gary Goddard major props, major credit. He definitely was able to make it look. In in my opinion, I feel like he was able to make the film look. you know bigger than it really is um, and you know if we if we start going to the film you know from the uh, the opening title sequence the a- opening title sequence is extremely grandiose and it's very epic in scale which suits the film in my opinion um, just right you know because the toy line in the animated series is it, let let's face it the toy line in the animated series is pretty much all over the place i mean it really is it's this Intergalactic civil war. I mean, if you try and explain, if you try to explain what the He-Man and the Masters of the Universe toy line and, and series was all about, you're gonna need. Uh, a good, uh, you know, I don't know, twenty minutes or so to explain it because it is a little all over the place. It's this intergalactic civil war where you have um, elements of medieval fantasy and also elements of science fiction with lasers and cyborgs and everything. I mean, so it is, it is bizarre, it is big, but Goddard is able to, you know, bring it all in and make, you know, from these this opening title sequence, he's able to make it feel. Epic and bigger budget than um, than than it really was.
1: Yeah, uh, you mentioned Star Wars, but actually, people forget that the first movie wasn't that expensive, and um, uh, actually, I think it was less than Masters of the Universe at the time, even though it was ten years earlier. Uh, okay. but yeah, Gary Goddard uh, actually managed to get. A really top-notch crew you know from yeah, especially Richard- by canon standards yeah yeah and I think a lot of the times he actually had to fight with them to get some of the names that he had although Edward Pressman also helped in that department uh, but you know considering you had like Richard Edlund on the special effects the visual effects uh who was working at uh for ilm before that and you had william stout uh the production design and even you know for the editing and Coates, who's a legendary editor you know who came from lawrence of, of arabia elephant man you know not the type of editor you'd think you'd find on masters of the Universe. Um, And I forget names, you know, Bill Conti at the score, who is really awesome and is kind of like the the second half of the movie. It's like the, it's like another, for me, movie scores are the second directing of the film.
0: Oh, most definitely. I think the score definitely helps sell this and definitely helps give it that epic scale. And, you know, as a kid seeing this, you know, one of my favorite moments of the film and even even watching it again as an adult. I But I have to admit, when the opening titles, when Masters of the Universe flies into the screen, I mean, it is just it is just so cool to see it, you know, um, especially as a little kid to see, you know, that that popular um, copyrighted, you know, um, Logo, you know, fly into the screen. It really is great, but you know, Gary Goddard, he is able to, you know, he he had a budget, you know, and if if you look at the entire toy line, you know, as is, you know. Putting all of that into a film, you're probably not going to be able to do successfully um, on a fifteen million dollar budget. But he is able to take definitely elements from the franchise and from the toy line and put it in the film. And like I said, this opening title sequence is great. And he made a very, in my opinion, wise decision. If he if he's going to film this, you know, he he knew what he had to work with and what he didn't have to work with. And so what he does is he bookends the film. On Eternia. You know, he opens the film and the first 10 minutes are in Eternia. And then the, the final, the last minutes of the film, you know, the final battle and everything like that is also on Eternia. So like I said, he bookends it to where, you know, the audience is able to get the idea that, you know, these characters are from another world. And what he does, which I also think is pretty smart, actually, is... You know, obviously the budget is not going to allow to, you know, have every single character from the Masters of the Universe franchise in there, as well as, you know, showcase the planet of Eternia. I guess if you look at it nowadays, it would make sense for the entire thing to take place on Eternia. But what he does is he, um, you know, he transports the characters to Earth. But like I said, the, the other thing that I think is interesting is okay, so he bookends the film on Eternia, um, but it seems like he put a good portion of that budget into skeletor's throne throne room and that throne room is extremely impressive when when our characters are you know on eternia they are essentially in that throne room and man that that throne room i guess it was two sound stages that they put together but it is a mix of these sound stages and these matte paintings as well that they you know transfer onto the screen but skeletor's throne room is just from a from a set you know standpoint it's extremely impressive. I I, I love watching it. It just looks so beautiful.
1: Yeah, and actually the throne room set was, at the time, it was the biggest set in Hollywood. Oh, you can tell. It's it's amazing. and, and, And it was probably, it took probably a good chunk of the budget, and I know that it was so huge and people talked about it in Hollywood. So you had celebrities coming to the set just to see it, like, Michael Jackson or Sylvester Stallone and uh, you know it's not a cheap film as people say um, which is easy to to dismiss and also it's very much a film of its time like you know people uh, give it a lot of crap for taking the story on earth but it was a typical plot point uh, in a lot of sci-fi fantasy movies of the 80s so I I, I don't see what's the huge problem and they still managed to make it epic and uh, you know of course you can see limitations and stuff like that but it it still holds up and you have to remember that Gary Goddard it was his first uh, theatrical feature and I think a lot of people were expecting him to fail you know, and he delivered the yeah. movie that was completed, that works. Um, so really, it, it there's not much you can you can say about it.
0: No. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about, you know, the pressure that was on that was on Dolph Lundgren in you know, taking on this role as well. But yeah, the, the pressure that had to be on Gary Goddard is also in, in the, the way he was able to turn in the product that he was under such pressure, in my opinion, is extremely commendable. I mean, so like I said, he's given this budget and he decides, okay, well, let's make The Throne Room extremely impressive. Let's, you know, bookend the film on, you know, open the film on Eternia, end the film on Eternia, um, you know. But he he casts such, you know, I feel great actors in the film. And the other thing I wanted to touch upon is, you know, the angle he takes with the film, okay. Because like you know, like we talked about earlier, it is, it is a pretty bizarre concept that, you know, that is... Uh, gonna, you know, how do you translate this on the film? Like I said, it's this intergalactic civil war with elements of, of medieval warfare mixed with science fiction and everything. So, you know, how are you gonna translate this onto film? And so, what he does <clears throat> is he gives the film, you know, almost a realistic edge to it in, in a way. You know, the cartoon and the toy line, like I said, let's face it, it it's it's largely pretty stupid. Um, but Goddard and company translated it to where. Um, it's not as campy as you would think it is, and it, it almost plays to a wider audience, and that, that's one of the things that I love about it.
1: Yeah, exactly, and that's what, uh, <clears throat> I mean, that's how I felt when I first saw it, is, like, this is the real Masters of the Universe, like, this is more realistic, exactly. and, you know, and it, it was in their mind to make a film that wasn't just for kids, but could appeal teenagers and adults as well and the, oh, I- yeah. and the idea was to do like a, a reverse take on The Wizard of Oz and th- that's how the, the, the script started and um, you know and and they had many artists work on the costumes and the production design um, like Claudio Mazzoli and even Mobius who was a huge comic book artist at the time and he had a lot of influences on the the He-Man costume for instance um, because you know if, if you take the the, the toy uh, and, and I think if they had taken it literally that would have been a bit silly and ridiculous in a way
0: Oh no, yeah, definitely. Like I said, you know it definitely has a little more um, realistic edge to it. you know how is this how is this concept, this you know this these characters going to translate on film? And so yeah, what Gary Goddard did, um, I, I thought was amazing. He makes it he makes it look um, as realistic, I guess as you can. The costumes are also, you know, fun to look at as well, because it's like, okay, um, if you're going to take Man of Arms, man, man at Arms, excuse me, you're going to take the character of Man at Arms, we use his him as, as an example, and you bring him into the real world, what is his costume going to look like? Well, he's going to, you know, essentially be a, a futuristic, you know, soldier, you know, with the helmet and the shoulder pads and everything. And they do that with, you know, with He-Man as well, you know, I mean, his costume essentially is, let's face it, just the, uh, the chest piece and, uh, the, the, the loincloth, I know it's not loincloth. But you know, and they make it just look um, realistic. Like like I said, as much as they can, and so that that's another thing that you have to give the film appreciation for is just the costumes. You know that they that these characters wear. They're still touching upon you know the source material, but in a sense, you know the, the, those colors that are on the the action figures and those colors that are in the. Uh, Cartoon and everything are probably not going to translate as well on screen, and so yeah, the, the these 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 characters are all wearing these these costumes that are um, more mutant colors. You know, lots of grays and blacks. You know, um, He Man's costume, I think, you know, has probably I'd say the most color to it because it is you know so shiny. But yeah, that, that's the other thing that that you look at and um, you have to appreciate.
1: Yeah, and you have to remember also that. Gary Goddard may have not directed a full motion picture before, but he was brilliant a brilliant guy um, because he had been in, in in the in the arts a long time and he worked at Disney and very young started his own company and got into doing you know attractions for theme parks and you know, and how he got the job was that first he had done the Universal Conan show um, that was quite successful and that Edward Pressman had seen and at the same time he was also working at Mattel for Mattel as a consultant Um, and I know he had actually worked on the Masters of the Universe brand and also he was developing his own show uh, with Mattel which was Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Futures right. and that's how Mattel approved him as a director but you know he had experience you know working with production design working with the crew and everything and had a sense of entertainment and, and also he was a big fan of comic books and people like Jack Kirby which he admitted later that masters of the universe was like an homage to uh jack kirby's new gods and 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 that shows
0: well definitely and you know i remember actually seeing the conan show when i was a real little kid at universal studios and it was definitely amazing to to watch so yeah gary goddard i feel is definitely the right choice for the film and you know as the film opens you know we're in we're on this uh planet of eternia and you know frank langella is skeletor My God, you know, I I feel it would be rude of us if we do not, you know, discuss (laughs) if we do not discuss Frank Langella as Skeletor. He is amazing in this role, and you can tell that Gary Goddard definitely, um, you know, really wanted Frank Langella for the role. He is excellent for the role, but he arguably, I would say, Skeletor probably gets more screen time than He Man in this thing because he opens the film. He Well, arguably, let's face it, he opens the film, he also ends the film. So, yeah, our first shots of the film are, you know, Skeletor um, walking along his throne room, giving commands, and he is just pure... Evil in this film, which again I feel was another uh, another nice touch, because if you look at the cartoon that the uh, that the film is, you know, also kind of drawing influences from. Skeletor is uh, much more goofy. He's cackling and he has this silly voice and everything. You know, uh, Langella is playing this as just pure evil incarnate, and you can tell he is just relishing it. Like he is just loving, you know, playing this role.
1: Yeah, and it was. Like you said, you know, the cartoon was very much like all the other cartoons of the time, very childish and, you know, Skeletor was kind of a, a, a almost like a parody of a, of a bad guy. And uh, in the film, not only they made him like, uh, you know, it, it, it's like the um, Hitchcock quotes. Hitchcock used to say like, a movie is only as good as his villain right. and that's what goddard set out to do and they wrote the character almost like a tragic shakespearean character and i think they even kind of ripped off some lines from shakespeare and you know yeah. because his dialogue is is, is brilliant and uh, like you said you know he just relished it and and i know langella which was at the time also you you wouldn't get actors like that on such a film you wouldn't get frank langella to do masters of the universe i mean now you have anthony hopkins in transformers but you know this was untypical typical and um, a lot of people know the story is that frank langella did the movie because His kids were Masters of the Universe fans.
0: Well, and he's gone on the record as well as this being his, you know, his favorite role of all time. Um, Right. And like I said, you can tell he is just having a blast. You can tell that Goddard really wanted to have a solid actor and a solid villain in the film. And so, yeah, like I said, it, it almost feels like he has more screen time and there is more. There is Langella definitely has more to do because let's face it, He Man for the most part is a pretty static character. So you know having the film focus you know solely on him um, maybe would not be even though ideal you know arguably it is a He Man movie. um, He He Man has to be surrounded by um, by other interesting characters and he has to have a villain who puts up a real a real threat. Okay, Um, one of the things that I always thought was was interesting and I don't know if maybe you can shed light on it or not but if you listen to the commentary of the film um, Gary Goddard really only mentions Dolph uh, twice okay and there is also a making of uh, feature of the film um, that is available on YouTube that's about 15 minutes um, I was going to put that in the show notes as well but it almost you know Gary Goddard is extremely he, he's pretty open about it in that he, you know Dolph Lundgren came with the package, and so he had to have Dolph Lundgren in the role of He-Man. I, I don't know if it's fair to say that I don't think Dolph was so much difficult to work with for Goddard, but you know you can tell that Goddard was, I don't know, um, struggling with uh with with working with Dolph on this film. It was a big it was a it was a big deal for Dolph. It was his first um, real um, picture where he had to speak these these lines in English, so his accent wasn't there. But, um, did, did he have problems with Dolph on set or was it difficult working with him? Do you know?
1: Well, I mean, you know, I, I talked to him about it, to Gary and, you know, like, like everybody else, he said, you know, Dolph was a real professional and it was great to work with him and everything. Um, but it it was a challenge for both of them, you know, to, to, um, um, bring He-Man to life and so I think maybe Goddard is now a bit more uh because he stayed in touch with a lot of people like French Angela and everything um and I think he had Goddard had like we just said he had more interest for Skeletor uh than He-Man um but I I think he had some difficulties to direct Dolph in in the way that he was not an accomplished actor and uh, and like Goddard told me which is not brought up a lot um, and I think also some of the interviews and some of the article that are now being published and everything are just showing one side of the story uh almost like saying oh you know uh make fun of Dolph you know he was kind of a bad actor and everything and stuff like that um the reality was that uh as Goddard told me Dolph was very good during the rehearsals and but when the cameras rolled suddenly his acting was different and his attitude was different and that shows on, on camera because, you know, uh, if you look at Rocky Four interviews for instance, Dolph's accent wasn't so huge. I mean Dolph has been studying in the United States and Australia and, you know, he, he spoke very good English, probably better than Arnold when he came to America um, but I think it's just a combination of his lack of confidence and his inexperience in front of the camera uh, that made his acting a little stiff and, and um, showing that he was a bit uncomfortable whereas apparently he was better during the rehearsals. You know, like the cameras yeah. kind of made him freeze in a way. Well
0: and I mean let's 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 also you know <laughs> let's put it out there you know everybody else in the film is wearing a full on costume and you know just you know the pressure that Dolph has you know he's he essentially you know shirtless and you know wearing you know Underwear throughout the film and he has to have this physique that is you know on display 24 7 I imagine um, you know in between shoots or whatever everyone else is you know hanging out and having fun He's probably in the back having to you know lift weights and pump iron to continue uh, maintaining that physique So yeah <laughs> he, he had
1: I think he had a special trailer with equipment to work out uh, between the takes and I know he would like, you know, pump up, um, you know, anytime the cameras were not rolling. And I know, for instance, since they shot a lot at night, even though it was Southern California, it was pretty cold. So I know, like, for instance, you'll hear him say, you know, that it was freezing and stuff like that. And um, not only that, but coming back to what we said about Franklin Jella and Skeletor you know how Dolph has a blast when he when he plays a villain you know and he's kind of showing the scenery and everything and uh, so so even though he hadn't really done that before in the way that he was in Universal Soldier for instance um... for sure playing He-Man and a you know a good... I mean He-Man is supposed to be the, the ultimate uh, all good, you know, um, almost perfect heroes. So, how do you play that? Exactly. And the character,
0: like I said, the character is pretty static. There's not a whole lot of growth and um, pathos in the role. Whereas, you know, the other characters really get to um, emote that. You know what I mean? Um, but the other thing that we haven't touched upon with um, Frank Langella is Skeletor. Um, one of the other things that gets the film a lot of crap, but I, 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 and I don't understand why to be honest. And like I said, maybe it's, maybe it's my bias that is completely overclouding my, (laughs) my judgment on the film. Um, but the makeup I I thought was the makeup I feel is impressive and a lot of, a lot of reviews and a lot of critics, um, malign it. And they think it just, you know, looks silly on, um, on Franklin jealous head. Um, I, I, as, as a kid, I certainly didn't mind it. I watch it as an adult Now and um, you know I I guess compared to what they have available nowadays, it's probably not the not the best. But um, I feel Langella is working great with it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and again, how do you translate that? You know, in a live action movie. I mean, um, this is not a this is not an easy thing. And they did what they thought would be the most realistic and at the same time the big thing was that they had frank langella and they had to let him do what he does and be able to be expressive and i think that's great as it is because even though he has a huge mask and he had to go through i don't know how many hours of makeup every day but you still see He's acting behind the mask, and that's pretty awesome. Oh, most
0: definitely. Yeah, no, most definitely. And, you know, um, what I was thought, you know, an- another interesting fact is, you know, after, after canon had folded and the, the cousins went their separate ways, um, Manahem went on to form uh, 21st Century Films. And so his company was responsible for the Captain America film. And in the Captain America film, you know, uh, Captain America's big adversary is the Red Skull. And I always thought, man, it, it was such a missed opportunity. You know, here Canon has proven that they can, you know, develop a skull-like mask for the villain, and for a character called the Red Skull, they don't, they don't use it. And you know, I always thought that was a missed opportunity. As even as a little kid, as a big Captain America fan, and seeing that movie for what it was, the fact that the character is called the Red Skull, and they've here's a company that has proven that they can, you know, bring something as best as they can to screen. And, and they do not. You know what I mean? And the Captain America movie was really only filmed two and a half years later after Masters of the Universe. So uh, I always thought that was a missed opportunity.
1: Yeah, and again, they didn't have... You know, the makeup artist on Masters was Michael Westmore who did all the makeup for the Rocky movies and uh, I think Raging Bull and I don't remember which other big movies. So So he was also... Uh, Someone who was top-notch and when the Captain America was made, they literally had no money. Like, actually, I I heard stories like, you know, Albert Pugh sometimes didn't have... He had to pretend to shoot because they didn't have film to put in the camera. And Menachem Golan was like running with a briefcase um, trying to raise money in cash during the production. (laughs) <laughs> you know yeah no it, it really is you know interesting
0: you know um the fact that you know canon essentially pretty much you know master of the universe was their last real big big you know film and um i always feel it was it was a you know if you're going to end on something i feel master of the universe is definitely the best looking of all of the canon films so the fact that this was one of their last big ones um definitely, definitely shows. I mean, you know, this was being filmed, I believe, simultaneously with Superman 4. So if you look at Superman 4 compared to this, without a doubt, no question, Master the Universe definitely looks more polished and much more professional than Superman 4 does.
1: Definitely. And I don't know everything about Superman 4, but for sure, there were tons of other... Uh, issues and stories about the making of the film and um, um, the, the rumor is that Canon would have actually put some money from Superman 4 into Masters but I don't know if it's true or not <coughs> uh, I asked Gary Goddard and he didn't know um, they had approximately the same budget even though masters ultimately went above and uh up to 22 million um but for sure superman 4 is another debacle and what i wanted to add regarding the folding of canon um i don't think that masters of the universe was as much of a you know had as much influence on canon folding because no, their story is so complicated and they had made so much investments outside of production you know in theater chains and uh, film labs and they were spending money all over the place and um, you know, they would have folded with or without Masters, you know, with or without Superman 4. No, yeah, most definitely. That's also something that people always say, oh, you know, that's one of the movies that, you know, um, uh, drain canon into the the gutter, but um, that's uh, not exactly the case. The same way... Um, people talk shit about Cutthroat Island, uh, ruining Karolko. That was also, you know, they had much other issues than just one movie.
0: Well, no. And, you know, like we established earlier, you know, it's just unfortunate, you know, for, for Dolph Lundgren to have this burgeoning, um, career, um, for this to be one of the, you know, one of the three films in a row to have you know these issues going on internally, it's unfortunate because it did affect him. Um, but you know when when we. Get into the film, like I said, where, you know, we, we open to the shot of Skeletor um, and the, the way that He-Man, I always felt, was brought on screen is is just so, <laughs> again, going back to as a kid, the way he's brought on screen is so cool. You know, you see his, his backside, you know, looking at that hologram of Skeletor speaking, you know, out to the, you know, to the land of Eternia and then, you know, he turns around, you see, you know, okay, this is He-Man and then we get into one of the first battle sequences of the film um, watching this the past couple times again as a kid you know you don't notice it too much but as an adult you watch it this first battle sequence of He-Man battling these these robot foot soldiers of Skeletor um, it, it, it's pretty clunky I will have to admit you watch it now and, you know, for the first battle sequence of, you know, of He-Man, where he is, you know, on screen, this is He-Man doing what He-Man does, the scene is, you know, fairly clunky. There's lots of close-up shots, and we really don't get to see Dolph doing anything, anything super, any, anything, you know, He-Man-like. And um, so I don't know what was going on production-wise. You know, they were filming this, um, you know, the, these outdoor scenes were being filmed on, uh, I believe it was Vasquez Rocks in California um and so yeah but it's 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 a bit of a uh, missed opportunity i guess in, in a lot of senses In the fact that you know the first time we get to see he-man doing what he-man does it's just you know this you know close-up shot you know extravaganza i guess
1: well to me uh i don't have a problem with the close-ups because to me it was to establish you know his muscles and his he-man and you know close-ups like that were pretty common um, at the time, uh, but you're right in the way that the editing is a bit clunky and I don't know why because actually you can tell from production stills that they had shot more footage of He-Man battling um, some of the skeletal soldiers um so they had more footage than that so it wasn't a matter of you know um that didn't have the time or didn't have the shots so i don't know exactly uh why it turned out this way in this sequence
0: yeah no it's just it's a bit of a letdown to see but um but you know we do still get to see um we do get to see you know He Man do what He Man does, and so we get to meet the other characters. You know he um uh, reunites with Man at Arms and Tila. We get to go back into the uh, the throne room. We also get to meet Gildor, who let's face it, Gwildor is essentially the orko character. You know you have this budget at the time. You know you can't really have a flying uh, a flying. I don't even know what Gildor, excuse me, Orko is. But you can't have a flying character flying around, and so they they introduced the character of Gwildor, which you know, like I said, we just talked about earlier. The film has this um, realistic, you know, element edge to it. So you know, the flying character of Orko, I don't really know if that would have played, even if they could do it um, by special effects standards. So again, as a little kid, I didn't really mind Gwildor being uh, being the substitute for Orko at the time.
1: Yeah, me, me neither. I mean, to me, Guildor is almost better than Orco because Orco was a bit too silly, in my opinion. He was a bit too kiddish. He was a bit too childish. Uh, and and uh, yeah, most definitely. also, Gwildor is more of a fit in the realm of, you know, fantasy stories, uh, where you have characters from different sizes and stuff like that, so... Um, so to me it works totally well um, as it is kind of a you know it's a fantasy and almost like a fairy tale Um, and I think the character is well written and has you know he's a bit witty and brings a, a sense of humor that's not too silly in my opinion but I know a lot of fans are you know uh don't like him i i don't know why honestly
0: well and (sighs) I mean, like I said, going back to the source material, the source material. Let's be honest, the source material is pretty stupid. So, so they they can't bring everything in there. I mean, even even Battle Cat. You know, we're going to be getting into right. that, I imagine. But they take they take Battle Cat out. You know, elements like Battle Cat and the whole Prince Adam turning into you know He Man, things of that nature. You know, not only would the budget not allow it, but it's just not going to. You know, um, it feels out of place in the world that Goddard has presented us and given us with this adaptation i don't think those elements are really going to fit you know in there you know they're, they're no. just not going
1: uh, and technically it was almost impossible at the time i mean to do it in a yeah. way that was believable and not too cheesy or you know ridiculous like uh, you know otherwise you, you would have had stuff like in it makes me think of uh, howard the duck you know where it's, yeah. it's you know it's it really doesn't work and so if they had tried not only it was complicated and it would have made the the shoot even more of a nightmare to deal with that on the set um, but it was technically not possible at the time to do it in a way that would work and regarding prince adam i'm also glad they didn't have that in there because i i I didn't really like the prince adam in the cartoon and if you remember the first toys uh with the first mini comics that they sold with the toys you had an origin story of he-man um that to me was the origin story of he-man where he was coming from a tribe of barbarian and there was no Prince Adam, um, which to me was so much cooler. And the Prince Adam for me in the cartoon was sort of a ripoff from Zorro or Superman or all of these double identities uh, characters. And uh, was kind of silly to me. I like it more if He-Man is more of a... Conan the Barbarian type of hero rather than, uh, you know, a prince who pretends not to be heroic and, you know, hides himself to transforms into a uh, super muscular hero, um, doesn't, doesn't do it for me. Well, and let's face it, you know, um,
0: you have basically an hour and 45 minutes to, you know, adapt this massively popular... Toy lines, so you can only do so many characters, and you only have so much time you know to do that and I I felt that Goddard balances it really well you know but going back to the character of of Orko you know Orko is responsible for let's be honest the uh, the MacGuffin of the film the film has this MacGuffin that everyone is trying to you know attain and Gwildor is responsible for that so we go into the cosmic key (laughs) and so the cosmic key is this uh, is this portal um, that opens up to other dimensions and as luck would have it this portal opens up to Earth, and you know, like you were saying earlier, a lot of people have problems with the fact that the film um, takes takes these characters and everything um, to Earth. Um, Goddard has you know gone on the record as well that when the script was written, they knew that they had you know so much budget to work with as well. Um, so Earth was the logical choice. Like you said, I don't really have too much of a problem with them um, with you know a good chunk of the film. Taken place on Earth, you know. It, it to me, it always, you know, made sense. You know, like I said, they had a certain budget to work with. It made sense, and they don't play it as silly, as 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 they definitely could. You know, we're introduced to these, you know, two characters, these two teenagers, uh, Julie and Kevin, uh, portrayed by the by a very young Courtney Cox and Robert Duncan McNeil. Um, you know, and so I feel like they could have gone a couple of ways. Like we established earlier, the film. Um, is not entirely kiddy it plays to a wider audience to where I feel that um, adults can enjoy it as well and so what Goddard and company I you know could have done and they didn't wisely but they could have made it to where okay they go to earth and you know He-Man and company have to team up with children and the fact that they didn't do that I have to give him major props for you know like I said they could have done that but the fact that they have them team up with these um with, with these you know young adults who are I'm assuming to be seniors in high school even though they look a little older than that um, I, I always thought was a was a wise choice and definitely helps work in playing to that more mature audience yeah
1: and, and you know I think they're very likable and uh, I don't have a problem with that either uh, especially with the fact that they um, they play well with the the introduction of, of these out of space characters and the you know the the, the initial terror that they bring um, and um, um, you know Julie and Kevin are you know going along with them but like you said they're not helping them in a way that uh, they would be kind of. Uh, Fighting skeletal soldiers or or stuff like that, and um, and at the same time, they're an intricate part of the the story, but in a way that works.
0: Well, most definitely, and they play the roles so sincerely. I mean, they really do. They right. they do such. As, as you watch it as an adult, they play the role... I mean, Courtney Cox is amazing. I mean, she, you know, looks frightened when she needs to be, and she's playing that extremely well. And Robert Duncan and McNeil as uh, as Kevin, he's doing, you know, a great job as well. So I don't feel... I, I guess from the, from the outset, you could look at these as just being typical stock, you know, teenage characters. But like I said, they could have gone, you know, they, they could have had it to where, you know, um, kids... You know, what I mean, yeah. find the cosmic key. You know, and it, and definitely, you know, I think. Let's face it, this is a toy line for children. If they wanted to, they could have played into that. You know, to kind of, you know, hit the kids as well. But they don't, and so that definitely, um, you know, like I said, makes it play to a wider audience, and and it works. It definitely clicks, and in my opinion, also, I think feel, um, I feel it makes it helps the film hold up by today's standards much more so than if they had children. You
1: know yeah yeah and and they didn't make them annoying or mm-hmm. you know brats or stupid teenagers uh, no they're not spoiled they which, which spoiled was things. something that could have happened as well and uh, like you said they're very candid and uh, I mean you know I think Courtney Cox was probably one of my first crushes on screen <laughs> you know mm-hmm. like she was the perfect girl next door and the one you want to have as a girlfriend Um, so it it it, it really works and I think also their point was to have um, a perspective you know a human perspective to identify with um, you know especially probably for like the adults or the parents uh, so you have another point of view on the on the story than the Eternian characters no
0: most definitely you know they do a great they, they do an excellent job in their roles and you know if we go back to Eternia you know Evil Lynn assembles um this team of bounty hunters um to to go after and find not only find the cosmic key but to you know bring He-Man back to be the prisoner of Skeletor um Man is the only one from the cartoon in the toy line and um you know, I imagine there were reasons for this as well um, in production. But you know, if you look at the toys, you know they have so many characters to choose from, and obviously they cannot bring all of those all of those characters in. But it, it was interesting to me. You know, she assembles this team of bounty hunters, and what a great opportunity to at least bring in some more characters from from the action figure line. But the only one that they bring in is Beast Man. I'm assuming it, Okay, I'm, I'm guessing. I'm just speculating, but I'm assuming that Karg is supposed to be the um, the equivalent to Hordak. Okay, if, if anyone who's familiar with the toys, that, that, that's what I'm guessing. But why do you think they didn't they didn't choose more characters to adapt from the toy line? They, they create these original characters. Now, I don't want to discredit the choices that they made, because I think Blade is a great villain. Sarad definitely looks cool. Karg looks cool. The the, the, the um, depiction of Beastman also looks cool. But, you know, there were so many villains from the toy line that they do not a- adapt for this opportunity for the for the bount- for the excuse me for the bounty hunters.
1: Well, there are two things because I know Mattel wanted to bring many many characters from the toys and like too many and Gary Goddard ha- had a hard time to explain to them that they couldn't bring uh, too many characters for the movie to work, otherwise it, it, it would have been a nightmare to make a cohesive story out of it. And at the same right. time, I think um, if there are three new villains that are introduced, it's because they wanted to uh, bring out new toys, so they had to... Have these new characters so that they could introduce new toys into the into their line, and that's why you have Karg and Blade mm-hmm. and Sword. Yeah,
0: no, I mean, like I said, they look cool and they do pose. I mean, He Man definitely dispatches of them um <laughs> pretty quickly when they do get to Earth. Um, but yeah, they do look cool. I guess it makes sense, you know, Mattel is funding this film, so it makes sense that they um would want to, you know, sell toys as well. And, you know, I I just realized, you know, um, Jean-Claude Van Damme, so if we go forward quite a few years, you know, Jean-Claude Van Damme did his own version of Masters of the Universe, in a sense, uh, the film Street Fighter. And so if you look at Street Fighter, Street Fighter is such an anomaly to watch because here is this film that is shoehorning in all of these characters and so as a result that film you know that film suffers for a few reasons but in my opinion one of the big reasons why Street Fighter suffers is because you have all of these characters who have been shoehorned in that they're all trying to give adequate time to in the film and when you only have a film that is an hour and 40 minutes you know you really can't can't put you know more characters in than, than you can even remember
1: you know Right, that's a good example. I didn't think of comparing the two, but. And I try to forget Street Fighter. Uh, I haven't seen it in a long time, but I remember it being uh, pretty problematic uh, in a lot of ways. And like you said, there are a l- lots of characters, and um, some of them being actually. Um, Probably more silly than in Masters of the Universe. And that didn't quite work. Uh, despite no, the despite the production does. value and everything. And there's definitely uh, issues inherent to the, the writing. And uh, whatnot and so forth. So um, that's a good comparison to um, another adaptation that... Um, didn't work as well and you and you can count many others um oh yeah you know like you had at the same time you had the super mario movie which was uh problematic and stuff like that so really masters wasn't that bad if you compare to other unsuccessful um uh adaptations well and yeah going back to
0: not only street fighter but to the costumes in Masters of the Universe, you know, if you look at, if you look at Masters of the Universe compared to Street Fighter, um, (laughs) and you compare them in terms of costumes, here Street Fighter is trying to be, you know, so allegiant to its source material to a fault, and that, you know, all of the costumes in Street Fighter are exactly what they look like in the game, and the film looks ridiculous as a result, whereas Masters of the Universe, this film that was made, you know, so many years prior, they're able to, you know, translate it to film to where, it's still based on that source material, but it also works, you know? So,
1: <laughs> Yeah, and we'll probably, we may come back to it in, a, in another episode, but I also think of The Punisher, uh, which is also blasted for his supposedly um, unfaithful adaptation, and especially the fact that the costume doesn't match the comic book, and yet, it was the same thing, that they adapted it for the screen and tried to make it more gritty and more realistic. And and I also think it, it worked. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah, well, and we, we've already talked about this,
0: but, um, yeah, no, you're most definitely going to be coming back for me. Well, there's quite a few doll films that I'd like to have you on for, but The Punisher is uh, a, a most definite, especially I was going to wait until the end of the show um, for you to plug this, but uh, you have a book that has been published on the making of The Punisher. Is that correct, sir?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, actually, I've started working on a book about dolls movies his whole career, that I had been working on for the past 10 years and I collected lots and lots of information and interviews with the cast and crew and it wasn't planned but uh, I wrote some liner notes for a blu-ray edition of The Punisher uh, which weren't um, used and I didn't realize that there were that much to talk about on the Punisher um, but actually I managed to um, turn those notes into a whole book about the making of the film and I released the first edition in France and I'm now editing the English edition which is uh, turning out to be almost twice as long as as the, the French edition so I'm expanding it And it's really the definitive making of the film. So we'll come back to that. Yeah, no, most definitely, most definitely. But
0: um, going back to Masters of the Universe, you know, it's uh, Courtney Cox's, her character of Julie. It's her first encounter with these otherworldly characters. And it's in this high school gymnasium. Um, This is one of the things, like we, we established earlier, how it can play to a wider audience, especially to adults. You know, here is a film based on this massively popular toy line and cartoon series and we have this scene in the high school gymnasium that i'm watching this okay so you know i'm an adult now with kids of my own and i'm watching this scene the scene in the gymnasium is oddly frightening and intense i mean it is extremely you know arguably this is a pg-rated film so this is a film for kids but this this scene in the gymnasium is intense we have um this the head custodian character his name is charlie we have him uh... We have him; he's beaten the hell out of. I mean, his face is all scratched up by the beast man, and we have poor Julie; she is being attacked with uh, blades and darts, and you know everything in this gymnasium. It's frightening, and it's still, you know, here. The film is thirty years later; the film is, or excuse me, the scene
1: is still frightening. Yeah, and, and people now are used to <clears throat> much more violence. I think in. Uh pg movies and pg-13 movies and uh but really at the at the time it it was quite intense for for what's essentially a kids movie and you know for example myself i hadn't seen many live action movies at the time when i saw it and uh it was pretty violent for me in a way there are a few sequences where uh you have a bit of blood and you have even elements like the... You have the, um, the blue color, the color that uh, Kevin is put on... Uh, I was going to y- get to that, you know, yeah. By Evelyn, and you have the laser whip um, that leaves lots of bloody marks on human's back and, you know, stuff like that. It, it wasn't, uh, you know, today or even if they had done a sequel... They probably would have toned it down.
0: Yeah, no. I'm glad you brought that up because, yeah, you know, he, here it is. You know, it's it's He-Man, okay, and Skeletor and everything. And just the fact – I remember seeing this as a kid and there are those scenes, yeah, like I said, where Charlie just gets, you know, the, the, the crap beat out of him and his face is bloodied. And then you have Kevin in another frightening scene where um, – Kevin, uh, Evil Lynn and her commandos, you know, throw that collar on him and they bloody him up a bit. You know, if we go, you know, like I said, I I can't believe we keep going back to uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme's Street Fighter. But if you look at Street Fighter, here is a film called Street Fighter based on a game where the characters are, you know... Like the title says, fighting, and there is not one drop of blood in that film whatsoever. Yet, you know, here you have Masters of the Universe, and there are these frightening scenes where the characters are shedding blood, you know. Um, You know, I I hate to spend a lot of time just talking about, you know, the the blood in this film, but it is interesting to watch. You know, it's a film uh, based on a toy line for kids, and, you know, Goddard translates it, you know, for these wider audiences to um for it to be enjoyable and it, it it's one of those things that um i think help it um help it hold up by today's standards
1: yeah and, and it's good that he, he had the possibility to do it because i know he had a lot of heat and pressure from mattel you know um in the way that they didn't want him man to kill anyone you know they they wanted the film to be very family friendly, so that's how they got the, you know, robotic soldiers so that it wasn't the same as if He-Man, you know, killed a a flesh and blood character. Uh, Exactly.
0: Yeah, and, and Gary Goddard went on the record in that interview. The reason why we have those um, those robot soldiers, it was not, you know, the, the film kind of gets unfairly, oh, he was um, ripping off Star Wars and the, uh, the, the stormtroopers from Star Wars. That wasn't the case. You know, we needed, you know, if you have a film uh, based on He-Man, you need to see He-Man, you know, kicking ass and doing what He-Man does. And so, yeah, that's why they brought in these robot soldiers so that He-Man, would have someone to smash and have someone to, you know, uh, do what He-Man does.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So, um, so yeah, we, we have quite a few you know, impressive uh, sequences while they're on Earth between He-Man and, you know, the Commandos and all these soldiers. Um, one of the sequences that I just loved as a kid, and maybe it doesn't play too well nowadays um, due to special effects, but the hoverboard sequence is definitely cool in concept. Um, due to the special effects and the limitations by today's standards, maybe it does look <laughs> it does look a little silly, but it definitely uh, you know was cool in concept.
1: I think it holds up, and and uh, oh yeah, you know <laughs> it, it doesn't feel to me it doesn't feel too clunky, and I think it you know you can tell um, you know it's going pretty fast, and and Dolph was really put on a on a platform that they were running at I don't know how many miles an hour and uh, I know that's one of the sequences he remembers the most about shooting the film um, because he was up there on the thing um, you know freezing and <laughs> and it, it, it must have been quite strange uh, shooting that but uh, visually I think it it holds up there might be one one shot i think where he goes underneath a tree and that's uh yes i I know it's a uh it's a miniature shot because i've seen stills of the um, of the models uh so it's a miniature shot and maybe that's a bit um uh awkward but other than that um I, I like the sequence too, and, um, I think it, it totally works.
0: Oh, the scene where he pulls out a sword, and he's able to trick the, uh, the one robot soldier, and he's able to pull out a sword and just blast, you know, <laughs> blast right. him off the hoverboard, um, as a kid, oh man, that, that, that is what He-Man would do, I mean, th- that was amazing to see, um, But, you know, He-Man is, you know, he is captured. He has to surrender himself to, you know, um, save his friends. And he is um, brought back to Eternia um, at this time as Skeletor's prisoner. And, you know, we established this earlier as well. Some of the, I feel like one of the weaknesses of the film, and this is something I really didn't pick up on. As you and I have talked about, I've seen this film (laughs) quite a few times, I'll say. You know, this film was played on loop in my household growing up. Um, So I really didn't pick up on this until later as an adult, but one of the weaknesses of the film, I feel, is the editing, okay? Um, And it's really, in my opinion, apparent in these scenes where he goes back to Eternia. Um, Here he is, he's transported back to Eternia, and they are immediately in this throne room, you know, as soon as he's back in Eternia. I feel like that this is one of those opportunities to where they could have maybe added on just a little bit of fat, maybe just a an exterior shot of Eternia, just to kind of let you know, you know, that he is that that they are back, you know, in a completely an, an entirely new planet, and another new world. Um, but as soon as you know he is boom back in Eternia, there they immediately go back to that throne room, and you know, on one hand, I guess it makes sense. The fact that, you know, they had, you know, all this budget. And so, of course, Goddard wanted to, you know, go back to the throne room. But um, it's one of those things to where I feel like, you know, they could they kind of tightened that up
1: just just a little bit in that aspect there. I, I That's funny. I didn't think of it. Um, maybe it was also a question of time uh, in mm. terms of not get the film to be too long. Um <clears throat> because I I know they they shot a lot more footage Um, the work print I think ran about 2 hours and 15 minutes Uh, so that's about 30 minutes longer and um, they might have cut out some stuff I know they cut out some footage uh, notably for time so that might be the reason otherwise Yeah, they could have had another establishing shot from Eternia and that I guess is that they probably didn't have that and they preferred to place it at another part of the story. Like I know you have another one later, um, uh, but that meant more, that was, uh, you know, mate paintings and, you know, more uh, visual effects to do and they already increased the number of effects shots uh, in the film. Well,
0: and the matte paintings that you know that are used to establish many of those shots are you know extremely impressive um, to, to look at, especially by today's standards. The one of Castle Grayskull um, that the film opens with is is just so cool to look at and see. Yeah. But yeah, you know, one of the things, one of the other things about this film that I'm surprised they haven't done that they haven't latched onto yet is. I would love, and I think there's tons of fans out there who would love to see a um, a special edition Blu-ray release of the film because you know the special features that they could put together on this film. I know that Goddard would be game. I know that, you know, quite a few of the other, um, stars who start in this film, um, would be game as well. I know Chelsea field is, you know, she, you know, who played Tila. I know she goes to quite a few of the, you know, conventions and will speak about the film. And she's even gone on, on interview on camera is saying that the film, she feels the film still holds up all these years later. So I would love, I don't think it's, you know, going to happen. Unfortunately, Warner brothers already put out a blu-ray release. Um, but I don't see why you know one of these companies like Shout Factory or Scream Factory could not do a, a really a really nice polished looking um, collector's edition of the film because I feel like that would sell exponentially well for the uh, especially for the fans.
1: Yeah, and and that's a controversial story because actually when Warner Brothers put out the Blu-ray in two thousand twelve, um, they had actually. Goddard actually uh, talked to them and he had already produced special features for that Blu-ray edition and it was to be supposed to be on there, it was supposed to be a special edition and um, you know for some reason Warner didn't want to spend any more money on this and sort of backed out and just put on the commentary that was on the, the original DVD. So there is already material existing, extras. Yeah. And no. there is a making-off that was made by the two filmmakers who did the documentary Toy Meisters, um, who did a full... You have a, a, a excerpts on YouTube, a 10 minutes clip on youtube of that making of but it's it's supposed to be longer and it was supposed to come out with the toy master film which is still unreleased publicly so um i hope we can see it one day and i know goddard also talked about uh doing a book about masters of the universe but you know this is one of these things with uh, busy people like that I don't know if it's going to happen but I, I hope so because that would be really really great
0: no I, I agree I think that would be awesome to see and I believe so there's the Toy Masters documentary and I believe there's another documentary out there that um that, that it covers over the entire uh, Masters of the Universe franchise and toy line and everything isn't there I believe it not it called Power of Grayskull or something yeah
1: yeah there's actually several documentaries there's even another one um but yeah the two the two most prominent are Toy Masters which I think they had trouble with distribution but it's supposed to come out I think on on demand this year. And there's Power of Gray School which was founded last year through Kickstarter and they got an amazing amount of money for it, like seventy five five thousand dollars and these are the guys who did uh they did a uh teenage mutant ninja turtles documentary a few years ago and they also did a, a conan documentary which is how they later went on to doing masters and in that documentary they interviewed gary goddard of course bill stout but also um frank langella and Dolph Lundgren and of course all the other people from the the toys and the and the cartoons so uh I know it premiered at the uh, at the PowerCon uh earlier this month and so I hope it uh comes out soon on on disc and because I think it's going to run about an hour and 45 minutes or something like that so should be cool yeah well, you know, nostalgia, you know, these
0: days is huge, and I mean, they, they, they can see, especially 80s nostalgia, I mean, you were talking about all these documentaries that are out there on these, you know, products of the 80s, right. um, there's another one that was um, that was recently released on the Garbage Pail Kids, I don't know if you remember the Garbage Pail Kids um, trading cards from the 80s as well, but an entire documentary was just put out uh, based on based on that, that product as well, so yeah, there is a market, there is a fan base for it. Um, I don't know i I have hope for uh a special you know blu-ray you know edition of of masters i think that would you know i I think it would be something pretty special to to look at especially for the fans you know
1: yeah of course and i i think the major problem is uh companies like warner brothers sometimes they want to hold on to properties even even though they're not going to do anything with it um And uh, especially Warner I think are very difficult to deal with uh, because otherwise yeah you know it could be done by shout factory or any company like that Um, and I I know it masters has always been one of the top sellers of all the doll films on on Amazon Um, and uh, and the, the you know, the the man Masters of the Universe brand uh also was you know, um you know, it was almost forgotten for a while in the nineties and early two thousand and uh and again with the internet it it totally came back again, uh, you know, to the point where Mattel uh made new toys for you know, uh, fans like us who are in their thirties or almost forties, and um,
0: and it's pretty huge. Well, no, and if you look at the um, if you look at the revival, the uh, the two thousand two uh, cartoon series revival, um, that version of He-Man is actually modeled after uh, after Dolph Lundgren's you know incarnation of the character as well. So you know the the film has you know legions of fans.
1: Yeah, and and, and uh, their uh, new line. Yeah, they they did a, a, a new line in two thousand two, um, where the toys were like you said. You know, it's more modern and it was more hip, and and then a few years later in two thousand eight, they did the Masters of the Universe Classics line, a um, bit more um, in the vein of the the eighties line, but um but with uh, a little more edge to it and and they just did another uh, another line again and so it keeps on going and and uh, the masters fans are you know it's a big uh, big community no yeah most definitely so um you know they you they, know, they, they even mean, uh, uh, sorry they they, they even uh, managed to release art books and re-releasing the mini comics and you know i think now you have like um four or five official books on masters of the universe oh yeah and i, I highly encourage
0: anybody um out there um who is <laughs> who is listening to the art of he-man book um but it was published i believe by dark horse um, is is just such. If you're a fan of the franchise and you do not know about this book, it is beautiful to look at. It is so. It is just so well put together. And um, you know they they even have an interview in there with, with Dolph Lundgren on his uh, on his role of uh, you know playing He Man. It only takes up about a page or two of the entire book. But it is it is a wonderful, wonderfully put together um, coffee table read. Most definitely. Yep. Um, so, yeah, if, 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 we go, if we go back to the film, you know, as we're, you know, winding it up and um, coming to a close, you know, we do have to discuss the final battle. And, you know, Goddard has gone on record with this as well. I guess, <laughs> I guess Cannon came in, you know, Cannon was, you know, having, having their own internal problems at the time. But, you know, Cannon came in as they're getting ready to, you know, film the final battle, the final shot of the film. And they essentially pulled the plug. And, you know, Goddard was, you know, he was adamant about, you know, well, they they can't finish the film. You know, there's there's the big fight. Then they need the big fight. So um, what you see in the film, the final battle between He-Man and Skeletor, um, if you look at it nowadays, like I said, as an adult, and if you know kind of what went on uh, behind the scenes, it is is a bit of a... uh, I keep saying missed opportunity, but you can tell that they filmed this when they pretty much had no money left Because it looks very apparent like it is on a soundstage and you know, Dolph is doing some impressive uh, uh, sword work in the scene, but um, you know considering that the entire film has built up to a climactic battle between your two leads your protagonist and your antagonist and for the battle to be what is on screen Bit of a letdown. As a kid, I didn't notice it too much, but you know, you watch it nowadays. It's a slight bit of a letdown.
1: Yeah, from my understanding, the fight was shot in two parts. So they had shot the first part of the fight, and the reason it was done in this kind of a darkened room because originally they had planned an an elaborate choreography inside the throne room. Um, but like often on a, on a movie set, you know, um, the time that was allowed to it was reduced. So they had, basically they had to come up with something new, you know, the day of shooting it. And so they, they, they put the light down and done something more simple. And then, um but they didn't sh- they didn't shoot it completely and that's when um cannon pulled the plug and so they had to yeah. shoot the end of 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 the fight and you know how it how it concludes uh... because uh... menahem Golan was was saying oh you know uh... they fight the end <laughs> you know <laughs> that's it and uh... uh... of course it, it, it couldn't work that way and they they wouldn't have had uh, a completed movie Um, so Goddard had to beg and plead and um, he put some of his own salary um, so that they could shoot uh, another day to to finish the the fight and the and the movie well and you know
0: and, and Goddard you know also went on the record as well You know, with this, I I guess he had had some, uh, some red flags, you know, early on and he had a feeling that, uh, that Cannon was going to do this to him. So if you watch the film, you know, as soon as, um, Skeletor's staff and He-Man's sword clash, um, his, his reasoning and his idea was that it was pretty much going to zap all of the power and all of the energy out of the room to where, when they fight, that is why the room is so darkened. Um, I have to admit, I I never really got that idea. You know, I didn't I didn't really um, understand that or see that until um, I I heard Goddard say that, and I guess it made sense. But um, had he not said that, I will be completely honest. I didn't really I didn't really get that vibe that that's what he was going for. Um, it, it 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 sounds cool, and I guess if if you know the story behind it, it definitely looks cool. Um, but for, from an outsider's perspective, who maybe was not um, in on that. I didn't know that, and it uh, it uh, you know it, it's not as apparent as I think Goddard um, wishes it would be, but <laughs> but
1: yeah, but uh, I didn't get it either. Uh, <coughs> for me, I like the fact that the the you know the fight is lacking in something, but um, I like the atmosphere of you know. Um, the the stylization of the, the room in the dark and something a bit more gritty than I- if they had kept you know the lights on and it's all bright and shiny and uh, um, it worked in that sense for me uh, but then again um, for sure um, you wish there had been something more or you know, something with the fight that would have been a bit more uh, climactic. No,
0: no, I agree. But um, but yeah, no, the, the film definitely ends still, you know, on a very positive note. Like you said, you know, it has this kind of reverse Wizard of Oz feel. Um, but yeah, it ends, you know on an extremely positive note where, um, you know, Julie and Kevin are able to return back to earth and, um, they've actually gone back in time to where she is able to fix some of the mistakes that she has felt she was always guilty of. Um, and then the closing shot, you know, is, is amazing as well. You have castle Grayskull. you have he-man raising his sword saying, I have the power. That's something else we haven't really touched upon, you know, in that final battle. Um, when, when Dolph finally, you know, uh, uh, gets his sword back and proclaims, I have the power. Again, as a kid, um, th- this was amazing to see. You know, your childhood hero, you know, I mean, I had all of the toys. I had Castle Gray Skull, and everything. And so to see this, you know, on screen, you know, um, y- you know, performed in real life was a spectacle to see. And, you know, and I don't think, you know, if we look at, you know, the films nowadays, you know, a new superhero movie is released to just about, You know, once a month anymore, it seems like, you know, I feel like the market, in my opinion, has gotten a little saturated. But um, so so nowadays, you know, kids get to see these these comic book, you know, um, figures uh, translated on screen. And it's almost like, you know, for example, if you go to Chris Evans as Captain America or Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man, it's almost like they have become synonymous with those characters. You know, if you go back 30 years ago to see, you know, this character um, translated on screen like this it was it it was it was a pretty not to sound cliche but it's a pretty magical sight you know to see that I don't think kids get nowadays
1: yeah and that's how I got you know being a kid of the 80s and at the time um you know we were much more impressed by that than kids today because today they're so immersed of images everywhere all the time and the technology evolved so much in 30 years that you can do anything and you can show anything on screen so that it's not that that much impressive anymore the same way kids are not as much thrilled to go to the movies to see something on a big screen because they can watch anything anywhere anytime and that's no, exactly. a, a big generation, uh, generational gap, I think, uh, because things have changed, and we have not been brought up in the same context. And uh, I know back then, really anything like that was, uh, like you said, it it was magical, and uh, it felt awesome, and it was a it was a huge deal. Um, I know watching any movie on the big screen back in the day was always a um, very powerful experience for me. Just to, to watch somebody, you know, a face or, or a landscape on the big screen was uh, really impressive for me. Oh, most definitely. And, you know, nowadays, you know, thanks to the Internet, you know,
0: on one hand, you know, it, it, it's a positive. I mean, let's face it. It's the landscape we live in, but, you know. But nowadays, when a film is in production, thanks to the Internet, you essentially have a lens into the making of that film. So by the time it is released, you have already seen many of the images and, you know, the, the actors playing these roles. You know, back at, you know, 30 years ago um, when Masters came out, you didn't have any of that. And so I remember being a little kid and seeing the poster for the first time and just being, you know, amazed like wow, you know, they they're, they're actually making this. They're actually making a He-Man movie and then, you know, seeing the first trailer, you know. I mean, you know, the internet didn't exist then, so everything was a uh, was a surprise and it was a treat that, you know, like you said kids do not get do not
1: get these days. Yeah, exactly. I mean, at best you had uh you had stills in, in, in magazine uh... and it was i think it was uh... if anything it helped you to fantasize about the, the movie you were about to see uh... rather than spoiling you of everything um, and like you said I, I remember seeing the the posters, the marquees like in the the parisian subway and especially since they had the French poster, had a special artist doing it and it was really in the vein of Drew Struzan and it was so epic. And I thought Dolph had a, you know, Dolph as He-Man had a, a really cool look. Um, and, you know, I can still remember uh, the first time I went to see it in the theater. Uh, I can just close my eyes and just be there. And remembering the, just uh, the experience of going there and, um, watching some of the shots for the first time and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you
0: know, go- going back to, you know, Dolph Lundgren's look as well, you know, um, <laughs> I'm glad they didn't uh they didn't give him the uh the Prince Valiant uh pageboy haircut that he had in the uh <laughs> in the in the comic series and yeah. in the animated series. Yeah. <laughs> it definitely it looks well for uh for 1987. But um you know if if you look at the film Canon definitely had had high hopes for it. Um, they were hoping for a sequel, especially by the final final shot of the film. Uh, we have Skeletor poke his head out of the uh, of the the water uh, that that he was. I'm assuming that he was dropped in that was at the bottom of the pit, um, and he proclaims to the audience that uh, he will be back. And so um, it, it's no big secret that yeah, Cannon did have um, you know pretty lofty goals and was anticipating a sequel to the film. Um, it's my understanding that uh, that Dolph was Dolph. Lundgren was not going to be back. It's my understanding that the film actually had a, quite a different angle that they were going to go with it. I know Albert Pune was going to be the director. I know they were looking at a surfer named Laird Hamilton to portray the role of He-Man this go-round. But if you read what they were... First of all, the budget was going to be half of what they had for the original Masters of the Universe. And if you read you know, various stories about what they were going to go for with the sequel... It is, it is best that they that they ended it with you know um with you know the original masters because it was not it, it did not sound good <laughs> from from yeah what I read yeah uh,
1: and it, it it could be a whole other story behind the scenes story and uh, I know Canon when they came they came to Can with the movie before it came out. Uh, there was a press conference with Dorf and Menachem Golan and Golan just said to the press, you know, Dolph Rundgren is going to make two other Masters of the Universe movies, you know, without having signed anything or, you know, and Dorf was just sitting quietly there and, uh, but, uh, yeah, also, um, you know, Albert Pune um, when he realized that the you know Canon was about to lose the the rights from Masters uh with Mattel and they were about to lose Spider-Man and he was the one who convinced them to make the two movies back to back. And uh Albert Pune is a is a very original guy and he has his own perspective and point of view on things. But, and he he talks about it in the the commentary that he did for Cyborg. The commentary actually starts 20 minutes before the movie. And he talks about how um, Masters of the Universe 2 and Spider-Man became Cyborg. And he talks about some of his ideas. And definitely it was far away from... Um, a faithful adaptation of Masters of the Universe probably going further than the first film and uh, it would have been an Albert Pune movie and not a uh, Masters of the Universe 2 film um, Oh yeah, most so, so definitely really, and they didn't have I don't think they didn't have half of the budget of the first film they had like a third of the budget um, supposedly um uh he was supposed to make the film for like 6 million dollars or or even less and uh like you said it's uh, uh it's a good thing that we didn't get that because i think the the fans would have been even more pissed off oh yeah most definitely but you know um
0: cyborg you know uh, oddly enough going back to jean-claude van damme uh, cyborg was an early jean-claude van damme vehicle as well um one of the later in one of the last films produced by canon but yeah if you watch cyborg it is it is an interesting artifact to look at um the film the film is extremely grim and and ugly um i will say that but what's interesting if you look at it it's fascinating to look at because yeah they are using a lot of the same costumes a lot of the sets and everything that they had established and built for the Masters of the Universe sequel, as well as Spider-Man. So, like I said, if you watch it as an artifact, it's it's interesting because you have to wonder, okay, whose costumes would have been with what character, and what would this, what would that set piece have been used for? The only one, as I watch it, the only <clears throat> the only costume that I can pick out um, being recycled or being used for Masters, um, the lead antagonist in Cyborg. Uh, the character's name is Fender, I believe. His outfit that he is wearing, I believe, is Blades, um, you know, chainmail that Blade was wearing in the original Masters, but that's the right. only real thing that yeah. I can pick up that was recycled, but I know that other things were recycled and reused.
1: Yeah, and it's hard to tell, um, but indeed, I know that Albert Pune's uh, story was, uh, was supposed to be dark and set in a... Uh, on earth uh, after the world had um, exploded or you know it was sort of a post apocalyptic uh, setting Uh, but at the same time and and I I don't know if it's exactly but there's reports about you know he-man going back and having to um, hide as a you know, being on the cover as a a, co- a football quarterback and skelet- yeah. Skeletor no. being being a, a kind of a, a what's it called? A, like a um, you know. Wasn't a, he
0: supposed uh, to be like a business industrialist or something like that? Yeah,
1: s- something like that. So it, it's it sounds really <laughs> weird, you know. Uh, yeah. No. So. No, uh, if you know.
0: If you think that the source material of Masters of the Universe was stupid, the directions that they were going to take this uh, the the sequel were were much worse. So yeah, it is a uh, it is a blessing <laughs> completely that they didn't uh, that they didn't go forward with the sequel.
1: I, I just think that Albert <clears throat> Kuhn just wanted to make his movie, you know, and uh, oh yeah, he, he says it, it would have been more interesting. But really it it wasn't a, a masters of the universe film. And I think he, no. he just wanted to make his own thing.
0: Yeah, no. Um so yeah, as as we wrap this up, you know, um I, I, I can imagine what you were going to say, but uh, me personally, I could not recommend this film more. Not just if you're a fan of Dolph Lundgren, not just if you're a fan of uh, of, of the toy line and you know the, the franchise He-Man as well, but um, to, to, to look at something from the 1980s um, and to see how they were able to make something look epic on the budget that they had, and and I, I don't mean to uh, to minimize the budget by any means, but just considering you know the source material and what they had. Um, it definitely gets a full recommend from me. Um, just you know, as a film in general, because it is it is a ton of fun to watch. I, I don't uh, I don't really under. I, I guess on one hand, I can understand some of the um, the critical bashing that the film gets. You know, for some aspects, but compared to a lot of what's put out there nowadays, I, I feel it still holds up, and I feel it's still it's still a ton of fun to watch.
1: Yeah, I, I feel the same, and I feel you know it, it's really enjoyable and. Y- you just have to take it for what it is, and and, and it's uh, it's easy to watch. It's fun to watch, and um, it's really likable. And um, you know, a- and for the time, it, it it's really. I mean, there are tons of movies like like this from the eighties. Um, you know that that were that that don't get that bashed and you know we're on the same level and I think the the level of masters was uh, was really uh, fair and more than decent so you know um, of course I am also biased and um, you know uh, for me at the time it was the greatest thing I had ever seen and and it uh, it shaped a big part of my life Uh, so it's also hard for me to see it um, with, a, with a distant eye, even though I, I, can, I can do it and I can also understand some of the uh, issues that some people have. But still, uh, I think it's too often unfairly um, criticized and, and it doesn't deserve that.
0: Well and you know yeah you you said it perfectly you know and it's it's almost difficult to fully review this film because you, you have two camps. You have the fans of the franchise, you know, the, the people who grew up with, with Masters of the Universe who are going to review it. And they're going to, you know, they're either going to love it or they're going to, you know, point out some of the, you know, the shortcomings of the film. But if you can also have, like, say, for example, a Roger Ebert or a, you know, an established film critic, you know, watching it. And it is unfortunately just going to be written off as, you know, an adaptation of a toy line. And that is it. So it, it it's 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 an interesting you know um, thing to review because, like I said, you have those two camps. So it's difficult to you know objectively look at it. Um, but on a scale of one to ten, um, and you, your own biases of, of course can uh, uh, <laughs> factor into this as well. But scale of one to ten, what are you going to give
1: this one, Jeremy? Uh, it depends where I stand. I I don't like to give. I don't like to give uh, movies notes and gradings, but uh, so I prefer to pass. But otherwise, I'll give it a ten. <laughs>
0: a ten? Okay, yeah, that, that's that's what I was gonna say as well. A ten because that this was there were very few films that were um, you know I, I saw a lot of movies growing up as a kid, but you know the few films that were played you know on loop in my household there there was a few there was this one. And there was the Monster Squad. The, the, those were the two. Oddly enough, both um, from 1987. Um, but yeah, th- this is definitely one of those ones. Um, I'm going to give it a 10 because it's you know it's such a uh, it's such an, a magical artifact from my childhood that um, hopefully I can uh, I can <laughs> play for my kids as well and they will appreciate like I did. But um, it definitely, and I'm glad to see that uh, Dolph Lundgren has. Um, has turned around on the film and has um, looked at it in a little more positive um, of, of a light. Because, let's face it, this is the film that um, not only was it his first big leading role, but this is, uh, you know, the film that really helped garner him um, the fan base that he that he has nowadays.
1: Yeah, de- definitely.
0: So, um, but yeah, no, it was um, Jeremy. I like I said, I, I really appreciate you. You. Uh, you joining me for this one today sir um you know like i said when i started this project it was it was pretty much a given um i I think i pretty much told you more or less i begged you to (laughs) to please come on so i really hope that you'd be willing to come back we agreed about the punisher but there's quite a other other few films of Dolph that i feel need an analysis and uh, need a discussion maybe just for our own benefit (laughs) but um but i'd love it if you came back
1: yeah, of course. I mean, any time to talk about Dolph and uh, I have lots of stories about the making of the films and, you know, there are lots of lesser known films that uh, I have a soft spot for and that deserve more recognition or, you know, that we talk about them and how they, how they were made and, and uh, you know, uh, it's been a pleasure, Sean. Yeah, no, um,
0: and like, like I said, I can't let you go without plugging um, uh, your own uh, your own work. You know, you have the Dolph Lundgren book as well as the as the website, which we haven't really fully gotten into. But this is how we first met. You run and maintain it's an extremely impressive website. But you run and maintain the uh, the Dolph Ultimate page, um, which is the. Uh, the 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 greatest fan page in my opinion but anybody who wants to uh, know more about uh, Dolph Lundgren as well as his films um, what he um, has in the pipeline just everything going on about him it is um, your website
1: sir is a true labor of love thank you yeah uh, I put a lot of work into it unfortunately I I didn't have time to update it uh, lately but I recommend people to go on the forum on the message board which is where i now uh post uh news and updates uh all the time so you can know everything of what's going on uh his current movies his upcoming movies and even uh, the past ones so there's always uh new things to discover new infos um, and so there you go DolphUltimate.com or DolphForum.com
0: Yeah, and um, yeah, it's funny because anytime I have a new um, snippet of information uh, about, about Dolph that I would like to, uh, that I'm like, oh man, I, I found something. Every time I try to put it on there, you always beat me to it, man. So, <laughs> so like I said, you are the ultimate scholar, so you always beat me to it. The one thing I was able to beat you to, one of the things that I do have to give myself uh, a pat on the back for, um, I don't know if you remember, but when it was announced that uh, Dolph was going to be starring in In the Name of the King too I think I beat you to that one by announcing that one before you did, but everything else, you are on top of my friend <laughs> thanks thanks <laughs> so uh, Jeremy Demoseau everyone uh, and uh, thank you for listening Jeremy thank you for joining me and uh, I'll see you next time on I must break this podcast I must break you